This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So we all know that money is the biggest source of conflict in families. And it, we know it causes divorces, it causes problems with children. The big issue, though, that we're going to talk about today is the problems that it can create after you die. Okay, and what we really want to learn and what we're going to discover today is how to maintain peace when you die. So peace among your children, among your spouse, among your former spouses, all of those things can be done with some very simple mechanisms. And I'm very, I feel very privileged to have one of the uh, best estate uh, planning lawyers in all of Arizona with us on the phone today. Um, Bill Clark is with Jennings Strauss, which is one of the largest uh, firms in Arizona. And uh, Bill has a tremendous amount of experience here and a tremendous amount of knowledge. And I'm sure he's got tons of war stories that we're, we're going to be glad to hear about because there's some really nasty stuff that happens if this isn't done right. So Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me this morning. So if you could, Bill, just give us, um, you know, 30 second background of uh, what your, you know, your experience and what you've been doing for the last 30, 40 years. <laughs> I, my um, background really started with, uh, I started, my first job out of law school was prosecuting taxpayers for the IRS uh, at uh, the IRS District Council Office here. Uh, since then, I've handled a number of, a variety of uh, family business uh, activities uh, over the last uh, 35 years. Family business activities uh, really involved the, the smaller family businesses uh, along with the succession planning for them. The succession planning really is the number one need for a small family business to keep going and perpetuate itself and the uh, proper and uh, uh, proper way of handling the succession planning is the most important ingredient to the continued thriving of a uh, family business. Uh, along with that, I'm, there's uh, estate planning is really one of the ancillary topics there. You know, that that's a really good point. And so one of the things that I we hear a lot um, in the last couple of years, you know, we had this big tax act in 2017 and we had this big change to the estate tax. And so now you hear people talking about, well, you don't really need to do a trust anymore. You know, it's, it's just so much easier because not very many people are subject to the estate tax, but estate tax aside, because really it hasn't applied to a lot of people for a long time, right? Not back, not since we had a $600,000, um, exclusion amount. So, we have this 20 some odd million dollar exclusion, but we still need to do estate planning. Bill, I mean, from your experiences, why is it important to actually plan? You know, this is not a, it's not a pleasant subject to plan. You're planning your death, basically. You're planning what happens when you die or, or you become disabled. Why is that so important, even ignoring tax issues? Oh, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the estate tax planning uh, has moved really to the background and 
the uh, current uh, estate tax regime really only applies to about the top one tenth, top one tenth of one percent of the population. Uh, but estate planning itself is absolutely critical for uh, everybody to consider. Uh, today's society, uh, with a 50% uh, divorce rate, really leads to a tremendous amount of blended families. And the blended families are really the stereotype problem for dealing with uh, an estate issue. When you have husband and wife who have children from their original marriages, then they have gone through a divorce proceeding, and then they've remarried, and you now have multiple interested parties in somebody's estate. So you have the new spouse, you have the uh, husband's original children, and you have the wife's original children, and possibly even children from the common marriage. And without proper definition and proper thinking about what people want to accomplish with their estate planning, uh, you end up with a potential nightmares as to what is uh, going to be the outcome of the uh, uh, allocation of assets, if, in particular if you go through an intestate proceeding. Okay, so let's talk about that. That's exactly where I wanted to go. So we most people know about wills, okay, and they know that they need to have a will, and they need to have a will because they need, especially if they have minor children, they need to, to designate their guardian in their will. But why isn't a will enough? Why would we also need what we call a living trust or a family trust? Generally, uh, two or three factors. Number one is a uh, trust offers the benefits of holding your assets during your lifetime such that in the event that you're incapacitated, you have the trustee ready to step in and take control of your assets during your lifetime without the necessary appointment of a guardian or conservator. The appointment of a guardian or conservator is a very expensive and time-consuming legal process that is necessary during a period of incapacity if you do not have Somewhat, someone that is already designated to be in charge of your assets. In particular, you know, banks are, and banks and financial institutions are very skittish about privacy and dealing with assets, uh, and therefore uh, they're not going to just simply take the word of a spouse that they uh, are in charge. And the same thing with healthcare decisions. A uh, second factor is you're avoiding probate administration by having your assets titled in the name of a trust and passing outside of any legal court proceeding. So there's a, not a need for any public filing of inventories or assets. And third, uh, and probably most importantly, is people, when they do a will, uh, when they do a trust, they generally are going into much greater detail as to what their intentions are after death and providing for a much greater level of control of assets 
uh, after their death. And so therefore they're able to, you know, specify much more specifically as to how they want their assets handled and administered on a post-death basis. Absolutely. And that's what I love about the trust is that <laughs> I'm, I'm the youngest of six children and um, so grew up with absolutely no control over my life whatsoever. And uh, I, so I, I have this thing. I love being in control. And I love the idea of a trust puts us in control even after we die. So I, I kind of get a kick out of that. Um, but it's, it's, imp- it's important. Now, let me step back just a minute, if we can, Bill, and discuss probate just for a second. Because I know some states, probate's pretty simple. If I understand right, and I, I want to have a, an attorney who's specialized in this area make sure that I know what I'm talking about. So probate is really just a matter of the court transferring the title, the assets, to the beneficiaries. Is that not correct? Right. The probate is the you know court process under which title to an asset is passed from a decedent to the designated beneficiary after the death of the of the uh, original owner of the asset. Arizona has actually a very simple informal probate procedure that unless you have a contest developed between beneficiaries is not that arduous. In contrast, California has a much more complicated and uh, much more onerous proceeding. So in reality, if uh, if you're a Californian or many other states, it's actually much more important for you to have a trust to avoid probate than it is in in Arizona. You know, it's a good point. At the same time, what I like about a trust, and we have clients in in all 50 states, and what I like about a trust for anybody, even if there's no estate planning issues, even if there's no conflict, is you've already transferred the title. So I had a client a number of years ago. These clients, uh, nurse and doctor married to each other. She was his nurse, and he died. And he had, he had done everything right. He'd set up the living trust. He'd uh, transferred title to everything in the living trust. And so she came to me afterwards and she goes, what do I have to do? And so I said, well, let's sit down with, you know, your attorney and let's, and we sat down with her, with, with their attorney and the attorney says, nothing, you have nothing to do. It's all done. And that was such a relief. And so when I think about trust, I think, well, this is a way to allow your family to, properly grieve without having to worry about money and not have to worry about, you know, who owns what and, and what goes where and, and dealing with courts and dealing with lawyers and all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you find that with your clients? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, it is uh, amazing when you have done a fully effectuated uh, trust implementation that uh, there is very little uh, that ultimately needs to be done uh, uh, after the death of the the party in order to pass title to assets. But you bring up a, a point there, you touched on a point there that is very important. It's not only the establishment or writing of the trust that's important. It's actually the implementation of the trust, which is includes the titling of assets in the name of the trust prior to death, because you can have the absolute best estate plan, the best uh, trust document uh, ever written, 
But if you don't title your assets in the name of the trust, then the assets are still held in your personal name uh, and pass uh, uh, according to your will. Now, most people will have what's called a pour-over will to pour over their assets into the trust, but that then requires those assets to first go through probate before they actually go into and become part of your trust. Yeah, let's talk about this for a second, because I think this is a very critical point, and I had an experience with it. I had a client that had substantial assets. And uh, <laughs> you talk about, you know, when you have multiple marriages. So he had, he had had three marriages and was, had for the last 15 years had a um, live-in girlfriend, not married to her. And he'd had children from two of the three wives. And he set up this elaborate plan. It was great. You know, a university was going to get money. And, you know, he had all, all, all planned out. Only he had not actually transferred the title of the assets to the trusts. And that litigation went on for years between, I mean, you have, you know, he clearly wanted to take care of his, his girlfriend who was his, his, uh, ostensibly his spouse. I mean, she'd lived with him for the last 15 years, taking care of him. And they were close, close friends. He wanted to take care of her. At the same time, you know, the kids are going, well, what about, what about us? And of course, ex-spouses are going, well, if we get it to the kids, then we get it to us, right? And so they, they get some control. And uh, I just found it was just such a nightmare. And it was just, and he had this great plan, and he just had not executed the plan. Just like you say, I'm, I'm sure you've got to see this over and over again. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I've had many situations where you have uh, people you know, going to their financial institution or their bank and the, uh, you know, I'm going to pick on the clerk at the bank for this time being, but the clerk at the bank is going to ask you, how do you want to uh, uh, your account to be titled? And the, the clerk of the bank in, uh, you know, we'll probably in default put the names of husband and wife on the account and not the name of the trust. The uh, result is that if husband and wife are both named on the account, virtually all banks deem that to be uh, held as joint tenants with rights of survivorship or community property with rights of survivorship. The result is that upon death, those assets pass immediately to the surviving joint tenant uh, in the account. Now, that works in many, many cases, but if you really intended that those assets become part of a trust that uh, provided, for example, lifetime income to the surviving spouse, but then upon death of the surviving spouse, uh, the principle was to go to the children from the original marriage. Uh, you've now made a, uh, an estate planning decision uh, that uh, is not what your intention really was. You know, I, I think that's a very important point. And uh, you bring up this idea that we have to designate a beneficiary. And, and by putting it in a joint account, we are designating are the, the other person on the joint account as the beneficiary and, and a beneficiary basically being the person who benefits from the, the asset. So it's who, who ends up with it. You were, we were talking about earlier, um, Bill, before we started that, um, 
there are certain things that you do want to go in the trust, but there are actually things that you don't want to go into the trust and that you want the beneficiary to be designated somebody other than tr the trust. Can you just talk for a, a couple of minutes about kind of the main items that you might not want to put into the trust, assuming everything else goes in there? Well, probably the um, most important asset to consider as sort of a separate category um, are your IRAs. Um, IRAs are basically assets that are not, uh, you do not title an IRA in the name of your trust to begin with. Your IRAs are in your individual, they're held during your lifetime in your individual name. And upon your, on death, you have the opportunity to provide a death beneficiary designation for them. Uh, it's very interesting that the IRA rules uh, for, have death beneficiary designations were just changed uh, in December of uh, 2019 with the most recent Budget Reconciliation Act here. And they eliminated what was called the uh, stretch IRA concept. If you are dealing with an IRA and you have a spouse and you want to have that spouse have the maximum flexibility and maximum control over the asset, you want to designate the spouse uh, in their individual name generally as the uh, owner of that account. That will allow them to, in general, uh, have the uh, have the IRA flow out uh, under their required minimum distribution rules. Uh, the new change to the IRA rules has uh, eliminated what is called the step stretch IRA provisions. And for non-spousal beneficiaries, you're now dealing with having to take the distributions out of the IRA within a minimum of 10 years after the date of death of the um, of the IRA holder. Uh, the whole purpose here is to raise money for the uh, Internal Revenue Service because the Internal Revenue Service wants this money out of IRAs as quickly as possible so that it gets taxed. Thank you for going through that. That was a, that was a major change that kind of, I think, escaped the news for the most part. So I appreciate you um, uh, adding that in there. So Let's talk a little bit about how trusts actually work during your lifetime, because I think people can be very concerned about, am I giving up control? You know, do I really want to do that? Do I want to go through that? I have found personally that uh, a family trust, a living trust, they're the same thing, that they're really simple to operate and they're very simple to set up and that um, and, and very inexpensive actually relatively inexpensive to set up so um, can you just walk through a little bit Bill how does that trust get set up and how does it work while you're alive well uh, while you're alive assuming it's a revocable living trust uh, it, it, there really is very little or no change to you know how you own and operate your assets. If you have a financial institution uh, account, you as the uh, set lore and trustee of the account are going to have full and complete control over the trust. You have the ability to revoke the trust, amend the trust, and take assets in and out of the trust as you see fit. The trust, if it's a revocable living trust, it does not provide any a type of creditor protection. 
Um, and it actually does not even require that you file a separate uh, trust income tax return. Uh, they're revocable trusts are considered to be disregarded entities for IRS purposes, and therefore they use your own personal social security number for tax identification purposes. Right. So um, thank you for mentioning that. You don't even have to have a separate employer identification number. I mean, you can, but you you can use your own social security number, which I think is you know, something that scares people about trust is, well, will the bank understand this? And what, what about when I go to apply for a mortgage and all that kind of stuff? I've actually found that of all the different types of what we might call an entity, although a trust is kind of an, a quasi-contract entity thing, um, but of all the different types of entities, the one that banks actually understand is a living trust, that they seem to understand that this is just a a, a pass-through entity that it's not going to have tax consequences. It's not going to um, have, um, you know, they're not going to have to worry about, are, you know, are they not going to be able to get their money, et cetera, et cetera. They don't really understand limited liability companies, LLCs. They clearly don't understand those. They rarely understand partnerships. Every once in a while, they may understand a corporation, but I actually find they don't understand those either. But a trust they seem to understand and they seem to be okay with. And and so it seems to me like this is just one of those things where it's not that hard to do and, and people just don't do it. Why why don't people do this, do you think, Bill? I, I think it's, it's uh, a concern that, uh, you know, they're giving up control. And it's basically unfounded concerns and it is... Uh, uh, a belief that they're um, somehow uh, distancing themselves from the assets, but that is not the case at all. And and that's what I love about the living trust is here you get to to make it easy for your family when you die. You're you're taken care of when you're disabled, which you know we you know the statistics are I guess you like six times more likely to be disabled than to die. So, you know, that disability thing, which I'm so glad you brought up, is, is that, that's a big part of that. And you really don't have to worry about what happens. And, and your family knows, you know, one of the things I was always very appreciative with my, my mother, uh, my parents, because they went through very carefully with the kids. And we actually went through and they said, go, because um, they were getting up in years. And they said, go put your name you know, we'll, we'll put a piece of masking tape on the back of a picture or a piano or, a, a, you know, some, some piece of art. Anything that you want, go put your name on it now. And they had us do that before they passed away. And it meant that, you know, when we passed away, everybody, I mean, there's names on everything. So nobody had to worry about this stuff. I just find that the last thing that I want my clients to have to worry about is their family getting into arguments after they die and getting to arguments over money and, ha and having it cause a split in the family, which I'm sure you've seen, I mean, dozens and dozens of times, Bill. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The stereotype situation is the blended family, but it does not, it's not necessarily limited to the blended family. Uh, we have plenty of situations where it's, you know, children from the same family that are fighting over assets. Uh, a couple situations where it is really most important to deal with the topic is in the family business context, because if you have, uh, say you have, you know, four children and you have two children that are active in the business and two children that are not, and you want the, ch the business to perpetuate itself, 
it's certainly much more logical to have the family business pass to the children that are part of the active family business and have non-family business assets pass to the children that are not active in the family business to avoid you know conflict and not only at the time of death but also in the future uh, when you know there's conflict over you know the the children that are actively involved in the business versus uh, not uh, having different motivations no thank you for that the the um and this is where life insurance might come into play right where we we might want to have life insurance that that provides the the funding to the kids not getting the family business so because I, I know a lot of business owners their assets are all tied up in their in their business um, they can be and so they really don't have a lot of other assets and so life insurance can kind of compensate the children who who aren't going to be involved in the family business and I'll tell you what having um, <laughs> having a bad partner is like the worst thing in the world and to have it be your sibling that's the bad partner and they're not doing anything I just can't think of anything worse than that um, so that, you know, to, for, uh, creating conflict. So as we wrap up here, um, Bill, just give us, if you can, uh, what are like two or three, uh, quick pieces of advice that you would give people when it comes to their estate planning? Really actually following up on the topic that you just mentioned, the, the use of life insurance. Uh, I find one of the best uses of life insurance is in the blended family situation where you have a surviving, where you have the potential for a surviving spouse that you want to fully provide for, but you also have children from an original marriage. And by providing uh, a life insurance benefit from for the children from the original marriage, you can, you know, in effect, make sure that you're that they are receiving something uh, out of your estate you know, while you're not dissipating the assets for the benefit of uh, that, that are held for the benefit of the uh, second or third spouse. The you know, most critical thing that I see in, in an estate plan is is really we've talked about it here today is number one is you want to make sure you have a, a current and viable health care power of attorney, financial power of attorney, revocable living trust, and a will. And you want to make sure that your assets have are either properly titled in the name of the trust or have the proper death beneficiary designation. Oh, thank you. Those are spot on. So, Bill, if um, if somebody, particularly somebody in Arizona, wanted to reach you, how would they how would they be able to get um, find out more about uh, Bill Clark and Jennings Strauss? Yes, um, we have the Jennings Strauss uh, law firm, um, and my name is William Clark, uh, C-L-A-R-K-E, and phone number is 602-262-5886, and I'd be happy to uh, uh, have a consultation with anybody. I generally don't call charge for initial consultations. Well, that's great, Bill. Thank you so much for taking time. Remember, everybody, that, you know, money is the biggest source of conflict in a family. And we, when, when we die, the last thing we want is to create conflict. And sometimes if we, if we don't plan for what happens when we die, and we never know when we're going to die, then we actually are 
creating a conflict that might not otherwise be there. So we want to really take care of that, make sure that our family can focus on grieving for our death, hopefully they'll grieve for us, and that that they'll really make it simple. And that's what we've been trying to do today. So I would encourage everybody to um, listen to this um, podcast over and over again. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the Wealth Ability Show. Please subscribe on iTunes and uh, leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. We'd like to get this out to more people. Um, and we would love to hear from you. So please also share your comments and feedback. So just remember that when you get do good estate planning when you've got that living trust, you've got that will, when you've got good team members like a Bill Clark on your team, you're always going to make way more money and pay way less tax. Thanks. See you next time. What if you could discover a simple way to double your profitability in the next 90 days without adding any new clients? As a listener of my podcast, I want to give you, for no charge, my five-step process for doing just that. Just go to wealthability.com slash CPA profit right now to get this free gift. I know this claim probably sounds exaggerated, but it is entirely doable and much easier than you'd think. In fact, this is the same five-step process that Cindy, my friend and member of the WealthAbility Network, used to increase her overall revenue by 50% while actually getting rid of some of her most troublesome clients. There's no purchase necessary. Just do these five steps and watch the results. To get your copy of this free gift, go to wealthability.com slash CPA profit. Wealthability.com slash CPA profit and double your profits now. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.